John chapter 14. Wow, 14 chapters. Uh, it's only taken us, what, two weeks short of a year to get here. And <laughs> I used to read the whole thing in one sitting. <laughs> uh, John chapter 14, we're in the middle of the upper room discourse, is what we call it. Uh, essentially, it's an after-dinner talk that Jesus has with his men. Uh, we've looked last week at, uh, as they wrapped dinner up, Jesus in chapter 13 takes a towel, wraps it around his waist, and goes and washes each of his disciples' feet, transferring their dirt onto his towel, and uh, very much how, as he does with us, uh, taking our dirt at the cross. And, um, then after that, he, we looked at last week uh, that he exposes Judas, essentially lets him know, look, uh, and he tells the, the guys, one of you it will betray me. And, and going around the room there at the triclinium table, the sort of the U-shaped table that they would be reclining at, about a foot off the floor, uh, they begin to wonder and to question among themselves, is it I? It, 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 am I the one you're talking about? And uh, introspection, it's not a bad thing. And of course, we know that one of them was, the rest of them weren't. And yet, uh, very often, I know in my life that God brings me to places of introspection to say, Lord, show me my heart. Uh, because our hearts are deceitfully wicked. They're uh, above all else, the Bible says. Not above some things, but about, above everything. And we can deceive ourselves. And uh, I think it was a healthy thing that these guys did that. Um, essentially questioning the Lord, show me my heart, show me if it's me. And so from there, uh, as he's exposing Judas, he says, uh, uh, one of you will betray me. And, and Peter motions across the table to John, who has his head on Jesus's breast and, and basically gestures what gives. Uh, that's how I interpret it. It says that he gestured to him. He didn't speak to him, but like, who's he talking about? And, and again, we talked about it, but just to recap, uh, I believe Peter's heart was if he could find out, he'd have stopped him. <laughs> and he would have stopped him dead in their tracks because he was very much in love with Jesus and very much protective of him and of the guys. And, and uh, we see that. He's the defender. And so as we went along, we saw that Jesus dipped his hand in the bread and, or dipped his bread in, in the, the, the sauce and he handed it to Judas and Judas went out into the night, it says, uh, which I think is... Um, I don't think it's uh, hugely significant, but I think it's significant because uh, G Judas was a child of the darkness. He was a child of, of, of the night and that he goes out into the night to betray the Lord. Uh, many things are done under the veil of darkness. And, and we're told in the beginning of this gospel that men didn't come to the light. They were repulsed by the light because they loved darkness more than they loved light. And that's what Judas's heart was about. And so uh, we looked at that and we saw that he went out and then uh, Jesus gives, as soon as Judas is gone, and we're going to look at it this morning, uh, there's some significant things that go on. Uh, we're going to blend the four Gospels a bit this morning. Uh, I'm going to back up, back into chapter 13, and then we'll go into chapter 14. Uh, because as I mentioned last week when we closed, chapter 13 ends with Jesus telling Peter, you're going to betray me. Before sunrise, before the cock crows. 
And, and if you let it end there, it sounds pretty condemning on Peter. But Jesus knew what was going on. He knew these guys hadn't quite gotten it. You know, we read the script and we see the whole thing, but this is being played out in these guys' lives and it doesn't stop there because Peter's saying, where are you going? He doesn't even pay attention to the great commandment that Jesus gives. And he's still hung up on, where, wait a minute, wait, just hold it. You're leaving? And, and I mean, I, I really believe that that was his heart, his posture at that point. And if you end at chapter 13 and you don't go into 14, you don't see Jesus's full response to Peter and to the rest of the men. Because he says, don't let your heart be troubled. I know this is burdensome for you guys. I know that this is not what you expected. And yet I'm in charge of this. I, I, I'm in control. And, and we'll see that as we go along. So we see that his departing thoughts here in the upper room sort of fall into two categories. First, he's telling them that he's going to leave. Secondly, he's preparing them to carry on after his departure. And so essentially, as we get into the text this morning, we're breaking into an after-dinner conversation uh, between five guys and Jesus. Now, there's 12 or 11 guys in the room. The other six are not named, but you could believe that they're paying close attention at this point. Uh, and, and just to use today's terminology, I mean, we, we, like, we kind of go with the formal names. There's Peter and Thomas and Philip and all that. But five guys, Pete, John, Tom, Phil, and Judas. Not Iscariot. Remember, there was more than one Judas. But if we look at that, I mean, there's just a bunch of guys sitting around the table, and they're talking after dinner. That's what the scene is. Uh, and I, I want to encourage you, don't religify this. It's Pete, John, Tom, Phil, and this guy named Judas, but not the guy that just left, talking to Jesus after dinner. Uh, and the rest of them would absolutely be riveted because of the things that Jesus is saying. In the Gospel of Luke, uh, we're told that they've been arguing, quarreling among themselves about greatness. And they're, they're, before Jesus begins these profound announcements and, and things that he's saying, they're talking about, and they're arguing about who's going to be greater than the other. They're ripping and tearing. We talked about that a bit the last couple of studies because their mind was like, wow, he's going to set up his kingdom and, and I get to be you know, sort of uh, uh, you know, in the upper circle and, and they're thinking hierarchy and he's thinking go low. That's why he does the servant thing. And, and so we see this whole paradoxical thing unfolding here in the upper room. Uh, as we get into this section, and I'm going to look at between chapter 13, verse 36, and chapter 14, verse 24, there are four questions that are asked by the guys. There's also one very intriguing statement that's uh, made as well, and, and they're this. I'll talk about them on the front end, and then we'll get into the text. The first is in uh, 1336, where Peter says, Lord, where are you going? Uh, I don't get this. I, I, as I mentioned a moment ago, he, he's totally dismayed. He's totally undone. He doesn't get what's going on. And he says, where are you going, Lord? And, and, and then in 37, after Jesus says, you can't come, he says, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for your sake. And so the second question is that. And the third, now Thomas enters into the picture, Tom, <laughs> and, and he says to, to Jesus, Lord, uh, in verse four, or chapter 14, verse 5, he says, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? Uh, and then, again, Philip enters into the conversation here in chapter 14. In verse 8, he says, Lord, show us the Father, 
and it's sufficient for us. It, it, well, we're good. You just show us the Father, and we're good. Which, and I love Philip's candor there because he's essentially issuing forth with a great cry of humanity. He's saying, I want to see God. And, and don't we all? And, and Jesus addresses him in that. The, the fourth question is with Judas in, in chapter 14, verse 22, where he says, Lord, how's it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Judas, is a, he's a kind of a nuts and bolts guy. He wants to know the mechanics behind it. All right, I'm, I'm sort of following you, Jesus, with you're going to show us some things and you're going to manifest yourself to us, you and the Father, because that's part of the dialogue there. But I'm really not sure how that works. Tell me how that works. And, and I love uh, Judas's. Uh, again, he's just very blunt and very straightforward. Something that's significant in all of these questions and in uh, the, the, the comment here is Jesus does not, he doesn't take these guys on. Every time they're missing it in one aspect or another, because again, they're living this out and they're really reaching, they're trying to understand. You ever been in a place where you're trying to understand what God's doing in your life? I think if you've been a Christian for very long, the answers are profound. Yes. There are, things, there are things in my life, I have no idea what God's doing. I just know that he's always working ahead of me. And, and that's something we can take great comfort in. He's always working ahead of us. He's working ahead of these guys now. He's revealing things that are about to happen. And yet he's not giving them the full picture. He knows they're going to have to live through this. And that's just what he does with us. We have the just shall live by faith. There's, it's no other way. He will always bring us to places where we have to trust. And we'll see that as we go through the text this morning. So picking it up in chapter 13, verse 33, uh, Jesus, again, and I love, it starts out with little children. I uh, mentioned last week, this is not an insult. This is an, an endearing term. Jesus is, is now, because the remaining 11 are people that are sold out for him, even though they don't understand everything, they really are sold out for him. They really are loving him. Uh, he addresses them with this endearing term, little children. I shall be with you a little while longer and you seek me. And as I said to the Jews where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, and he goes into the great commandment, but when he, he, he says, as I told the Jews, and remember back when Jesus, during the, the procession at the Feast of Tabernacles, there was a, a great pr procession. The priests were carrying the pitchers up from the pool of uh, Siloam. And, and here it's the, it's the silent procession. In the middle of that, Jesus cries out, drink the water that I give you. And they got pretty irritated with that. They, they did not like what he did there at all. Uh, and they, they came and confronted him in, in verse uh, 21 of chapter 8, Jesus says to the religious leaders, I'm going away and you, seek to, and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. It goes on to say they reasoned among themselves. They couldn't figure out what he was talking about there. They thought he was talking about committing suicide. Uh, and yet, uh, as he said to the Jews, where I'm going, you can't come. He's telling Peter this. And, and again, Peter's perplexed and uh, and. We would be too, were we not reading this whole thing and seeing the end from the beginning. In verse 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this will all know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So three times in two verses, he says, love one another. Love one another. Love one another. 
very emphatic. This is the greatest commandment. We talked about it last week. I'm not going to go into it and unpack it like we did then, but it is so, so important. One thing I did mention, and I'll mention again, this is the most broken commandment, I think, in God's word. He says, love one another. He's not talking about love the world. I mean, James says to love the world is hostility with Christ. It's enmity with Christ. It's, it's, so we're not to love the world, but we are to love one another. And he says, by this, Singular, by this one thing, not how many programs does your church have, how, many, you know, how much money do you have, how far is your reach, what are your missions focus, what are all the things you're doing. Harvey's been teaching us in the book of Revelation that over and over again, Jesus says, I know your works, I know what you're doing, but I have this against you. And very often, if you run that thing out that he's talking about in those letters to the seven churches is because they had left, as he says to the church at Ephesus, their first love. So he's saying, look, there may be, and it's not always quarreling that people don't see the love. It's because people's hearts grow cold. And in and, and, and the last days, we're told that in our time, that the love of many, the King James, the love of many will wax cold. And I like that word because I think about what happens when, when wax is, is heated up, when it's fired up, it's, it's fluid and, and it's useful and it, it's moldable and all of those things. And yet, what happens when wax cools off? It becomes brittle and hard. And that's the picture with people's love waxing cold. It just becomes brittle and hard and inflexible. And may it not be so among us, brothers and sisters. I pray, I pray for this church all the time. And one of the things I pray for is that our love would be known when people look in that door, that they would see love. And I love telling people we are a really loving bunch. Uh, I think it's a great testimony for our church. I would rather tell people we're a loving bunch than we are really smart. You know, well, that's questionable anyway. No, I'm kidding. But no, I'm serious. I would rather be known. We, we want to be known by the love that we have for one another. And, and so when he says this, I, I'm giving you a commandment. This isn't optional. He's saying this is a command. Do it is what's implied here that you love one another, and, and then he gives the standard. We talked about it again last, I guess I am kind of unpacking it a bit more than I thought, but that's fine. I'll repeat it. Uh, remember back when they tried to take Jesus on, and he said, well, they said, what's the greatest commandment in the law? They were trying to go with the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. What's the greatest? And, and he said, no, no, it's not about that. It's about love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And and so that became the standard in those people's minds. Well, I got to love my neighbor as I love myself. First love God and love my neighbor as myself because I don't have any trouble loving myself. And yet he does a whole different thing here. He raises the bar and he says, love each other the way that I'm loving you. And I, I, I would submit to you that his love is being poured out on these guys because every time they get some screwball interpretation of what he's talking about, he just loves them. He just loves them. And he loves them through it. Uh, it's awesome. When you look and you just kind of let what's going on here seep in, this is filled with the love of Jesus, with the grace of God pouring out through the pages, through the words, not just to these guys, but to us. Because what he's showing in this passage is how to love one another. Uh, we're going to look at that more as we look at Peter and where Satan actually came to, to God and said, I want to sift him like wheat. And Jesus allowed it because Peter hadn't been broken. 
And, and, and we'll talk about, oh boy, I'm tempted to get way ahead of myself. But, uh, so he gives this new commandment. He says, this is how you'll be known. In uh, verse 36, Simon Peter says to him, this is the first question, Lord, where are you going? He didn't get, I, I mentioned last week, he probably was like totally caught up and, and curious, why did he say that I'm going away? He didn't hear the love thing. He'd get to that later. But Lord, where are you going? Wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. Hold the phone. They didn't have phones, but you know, hold it. And, and what are you saying? And Jesus answers him, and he says, where I'm going, you can't follow me now, but you'll follow me afterward. Why would he say that? Well, first of all, they would not survive. Uh, I mean, he says, Are you, can you be baptized with the same baptism I'm baptized with? Can you take the cup that I'm going to take? Any person in all of history, before or after, would, would it be like Moses, you know, when he said, Lord, show me your face. And God said, no, Moses, it'd kill you. It, it would fry you. You, you, couldn't, you couldn't bear under my glory. And Jesus is about to be glorified through the cross. And he knew these guys couldn't bear up. There was nobody who could bear up because he was the perfect man, the God man. And, and so sin had not yet been atoned for, and they couldn't stand in the place of humanity as Jesus was about to do what he was going to do. He would become the propitiate. Big word, but it's a Bible word, and it's only a couple of times in the New Testament. And essentially, what it is, the word propitiation means to absorb wrath. That Jesus, when he hung on that cross, he, when, when he, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We don't understand completely what that's about. But there was a tearing in God himself at that moment as the Father placed the sins of humanity on the Son. And he wore our sins. And if you're not eternally grateful, grateful for that, then you really need to examine your theology because that is the pivot point for humanity. And he says to these guys, you can't come. He's protecting them. He's loving them in this. You, you, there, you would not bear up. Believe me, you don't want to do this. You'll come later after I've atoned, is what it's implied here, but you can't come now. And Peter says to him, Lord, why can't I not follow you now? I'll lay down my life for your sake. Uh, you know, Peter is really courageous here in his own mind. And I would submit to you that, that and I've noticed in my life, is sometimes I can be courageous. And uh, it's really probably mostly due to the fact that I'm desperately ignorant about what's going on. I remember being on a houseboat on a lake one time, and there was this electrical storm that came up. There were like, 3,500 lightning strikes around this lake. And I'm on the, the, the second biggest houseboat on the lake. And this electrical storm is just raging. And I'm thinking, we're toast. We are seriously done. I can't get in the boat, even get to shore, because the lightning was coming down all around us. It was this big thing, this place called Lake Oroville. And, and so uh, I'm out there, and, and this storm's going on. And one of the people on the boat, this woman, comes walking out, and she's got a bowl of Captain Crunch. And I'm going, we're going to die. What, is, what are you doing? You're eating Captain Crunch in the middle of the storm. This lightning's flashing all over the place. What's wrong with you? And, and she's like, just taking a spoon at a time, saying, well, I was a little hungry. 
And I said, the only reason why you're doing this is because you're ignorant of what's going on. It's like, we're going to die. And it was, just, it was funny in retrospect, but it's kind of like what these guys are doing here. They're, they're just kind of like eating the Captain Crunch and kind of going along. So I don't know what you're doing there, Jesus, but, you know, hey, I'm good, you know, and maybe dig another spoon. But, and I'm not trying to spiritualize this, guys, but it is, in, in a sense, it's a little bit humorous because these guys are just kind of letting it go and they're, they're trying to figure this out, but they know, they trust Jesus at the end of the day. And so he's saying, why can't I follow you? And he doesn't realize that this storm will kill him if he steps out into it, the thing that Jesus is doing. And uh, as we blend the Gospels in Luke chapter 22, uh, this is part of Jesus' response. And part of why I want to blend this is because this is something that occurs in all four Gospels, the Last Supper. And so there are different points that come out in the different, in the synoptics. The other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic Gospels because there's a lot of similarity between them. Most of the Gospel of John is unique to the Gospel of John. So uh, it's good to be able to pull things from the, the other Gospels. And in Luke chapter 22, the Lord says to, to Peter, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Now, the word you there, he's talking to Peter, but the you is plural, okay? He's, he's directing his comments at Peter, but this comment is for all of the guys. They will all be sifted. Peter specifically, and we see the story played out with Peter, but they all will be, and we'll see how that works here in a second. Uh, in verse 32 of Luke 22, he says, But I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me, which is a very interesting thought, a very interesting comment. When you've returned, what it implies is you will depart. When you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren, which is precisely what Peter did. Uh, Verse 33, but he said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Uh, Again, asserting, and Peter meant it. He just didn't have the power to carry it off. Matthew and Mark uh, tell us, so said all of the disciples. We'll go to the death for you, Lord. We will do this. And you know, uh, again, uh, it's just really worth putting down here and and bringing to our attention, this is self-effort at its finest. Self-effort will cause you to fall short every time. The kingdom of God is not about self-effort. It's not about me being bold and courageous for Jesus. It's about me simply allowing him to empower me. It's through allowing his Holy Spirit to have his way in me, to let him be on the throne of my life. I step off of it because all I'm going to do is mess it up. And that's just what these guys would do before the night was over. And so self-effort is really exerting itself here in this story. And we'll see the outcome of that as we go along. So in John 13, again, in verse 38, Jesus answers Peter. He says, will you lay down your life for my sake? Really, Peter? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. So the second question is, is Lord, why can't I follow you now? Will you lay, and Jesus says, will you lay down your life for me? And again, folks, it's one thing to die for Christ. And I understand Peter's boldness here. But it's another thing entirely to do what he's called each of us to do, and that's to die daily as we live for Christ. Big difference. He's not called us. And, and yes, he does some. We support a ministry called Far Reaching Ministries as part of our mission's focus in this church. And, and these are guys that literally put their lives on the line and they've lost 
50 some odd people in their chaplain's corps in southern Sudan uh, in the last, what is it, 10 or 12 years. Uh, many people in the last year because of the, the hostile um, acts of the rebels there, the, the, the Islamic rebels that they are standing, standing against. They go into towns and they totally wipe everybody out. The genocide that's going on there is horrific. And these Christian men, these chaplains corps that, that far-reaching ministries equips are going in to the front lines. Yes, that is an absolute way that people die for their faith. And yet what God calls us to do is to live for him. And uh, I would submit that in some ways, I mean, that's a singular event to die for him, but it's a daily thing to live for him. That's why Paul said, I die daily. I have to purposely, willfully get off the throne of my heart and allow you, Lord, to be on it. Because it's the only way that my life is going to count for anything. It's not going to be through my own self-effort of, of being a religious guy, because that's what religion does. It puts self on the throne. But relationship with him, it, it's saying, Lord, I, I bow the knee. I submit to your lordship in my life. And as I submit to your lordship, I get out of the way. And I allow you to come forth and for you to produce fruit in my life. In Matthew chapter 20, uh, after James and John's mother uh, came to Jesus and, and uh, asked if they could sit on his right and his left. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. But uh, further down in the chapter, uh, Jesus is talking about servanthood. And he says, whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. We talked about that with his foot washing here in chapter 13. Uh, and then verse 28 uh, there in Matthew, he says, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Why could Peter not follow him? Because Peter couldn't pay the ransom. Nobody could pay the ransom but Jesus. That was why he came. He was born for this night. And they weren't getting it. And yet he just continued to love them and to, to patiently lay out for him, them the things that lie ahead. Uh, I love that about him. Chapter 14. Verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Let not your heart be troubled. We could spend the rest of the time just on that. We could stop there. How many of you have had a troubled heart this week? I wasn't looking for a show of hands. We live in a troubled world. We live among a fallen, troubled humanity. And Jesus addressing these guys, again, Peter's trying to figure out where are you going? What are you doing? I don't get this. You're turning me upside down, inside out. Jesus, I don't get it. And Jesus' response is, you can't come with me. But I want to encourage you, Peter. And I think his encouragement is to us, to his church, even now. Don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let this upset you. Don't let this turn you inside out. Uh, you know, this comes across, the way that it's structured in Greek, it comes across as a command. He's not, he's not saying, hey, you know, you might want to think about this. He's saying, no, don't let your heart be troubled. Uh, the way that it comes out is set your heart at ease. You don't have to be upset about this, guys. You don't have to let this turn you inside out. So, it's not just trouble around us that 
gets to it. It's what these guys were experiencing, and it's trouble within us. I know when I don't understand what's going on, and that's part of our human nature. Uh, our nature is we fear that which we do not understand. And that's all of us. I know uh, when a person is, uh, and many times over the years, uh, I've had opportunity to come alongside someone who's really sick. And maybe they've gotten word from the doctor that that x-ray didn't look right or that blood test shows something. And, and we're walking alongside and coming alongside that person as they're trying to figure it out. Their heart is troubled because we fear that which we do not know. And perhaps there's nothing significant about that. That's one outcome. Perhaps there is. That's another. But just knowing brings a certainty. It brings a, a settledness. These guys don't know what's going on, and their hearts are troubled. And that's not saying that it's sin. I mean, just look at in chapter 13, it says that Jesus' heart was troubled. He was, he was upset by the thought of Judas betraying him. And so it's not that that's not a human reaction. It's not sin for your heart to be troubled, but it will get in the way every time. Because it takes our focus off of Jesus and onto our circumstance. And part of what he wants to do in our lives is to bring us to a place to where we are trusting him, understanding that he's got this, that he's in control, that he can take care of whatever that thing is that's burdening me. And as I trust him, I don't have to know the outcome. I can simply say, Lord, I know you. I know you've got this, and I know this is for my good. I don't know how at this point it looks really bad even. And yet very often he brings us to those places where he simply wants to take us and say to us, don't let your heart be troubled, John. You believe in God, believe in me. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's giving him the recipe to not be troubled. How do you not be troubled? You trust. When he says believe here, you, you, many times I insert the word trust where it says believe. Because believe, at least how it, how it unpacks in English, doesn't have the strength that the word trust has. And he's saying, guys, got to trust me on this. And if you're trusting me, your heart won't be troubled. Do you see how that works? And what he's saying here, he connects those two, uh, these two comments in one sentence because they are inseparable if you want to live a life that is trusting Jesus, that your heart is, you are not wrenched by your circumstances every time you turn around. You're upset. Something's going on. Stacy and I are watching this thing on, I don't know, Animal Planet or whatever it is, the program. This is one woman that's on this particular program. Every time something goes wrong, she screams. And then they have beeps after it and stuff. <laughs> but I thought, that's a woman who has a troubled heart. And I just don't want to be that person. I don't want to be the person who, man, my apple cart's upset every time something comes at me. I don't understand what's going on. And I'm, now I'm mad. Or now I'm upset. Or now I'm just, you know, we really can't have peace in the middle of the storm. Um, he never wanted us to have lives without trouble understand this, but he promised that we could have an untroubled heart even in a troubled life. So it's not that we're going to escape trouble in this life. We're not going to escape the effects of living in a fallen world 
But we can have an untroubled heart. It's part of the fruit of his spirit. Love, joy, peace. We can have peace. The peace of God. Paul calls it the peace of God in Philippians chapter 4, and it only comes one way, by having peace with God. And so I would encourage you, if you're struggling, and, and this life throws things at us, let not your heart be troubled. Verse 2, um, Jesus continues, in my, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, and I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So I mentioned last week as we were closing, the word mansions is actually, it's a poor translation. Uh, literally, it is, in my Father's house are many dwelling places or many abiding places. Uh, it's not about buildings. It's about him. And that came home to me very graphically uh, one time. Uh, and, and he's still responding to Peter in love here. He's talking about why he's leaving now. He said, I'm, I, I'm going. You can't come, Pete. You, you're not going to be able to do this. You can't take the cup. Uh, and yet, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I, I'm going to go to a place, and in my father's house, there are many dwelling places, and I'm going so that I can prepare a place for you so that I can come back and get you. That where I am, you can be too. And so what he's talking about here, he's talking about heaven. He's talking about his father's house. And, and there's not a lot written about heaven. I mean, there is enough. Uh, there's actually a whole lot more written about hell in the New Testament than there is heaven. Uh, and, and yet what he says here is he's putting heaven right in front of these guys. He's saying, you know what? This world, this life, it's a stage. It's a stage upon which the act of redemption is carried out. That's home. That's home. This earth is not your home. And if you're trying to arrange it for your comfort to get it to be the only home you ever know, you will be woefully disappointed because we live on a fallen world. We live in a place that if we get too attached, the Lord has a way of prying our fingers off of it and giving us a reality check and that we will be in a place, a much better place. We're much better off if we see this world as the stage upon which redemption is carried out and our home is with him. This was foreign to the Jewish mindset of the day. They thought Messiah would come back and set up his kingdom here. And he will in the millennial reign and all that. And we'll get to that in, in Harvey's study on Sunday nights. But, but what he's talking about here is very foreign to these guys. They pictured Messiah coming, setting up his kingdom, setting up you know, his headquarters there in Jerusalem and all that. And they had no concept that he was going to come and redeem us from ourselves. And that then he would go to prepare heaven for us so that he could come back and get us and take us there. This is completely foreign to their minds. Completely foreign. But he uses some language here, and I talked about this before when we looked at the wedding in Cana there uh, earlier on in this gospel. Uh, he's essentially uh, using bridal language, wedding language. I, I've got a slide here. Uh, what the slide is, is it is, this is the ruins at first century Capernaum. 
uh, on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. This is where Jesus' headquarters was uh, when he switched his headquarters from Nazareth. When, remember, they kind of ran him out of town there uh, when he read from the scroll of Isaiah. And then he relocated to Capernaum. And this is the, the photo here was probably taken from Peter's house. Uh, there's a big kind of a shrine there that the Catholic Church has erected with a glass floor. You look down on Peter's house, and it's, it's kind of cool in there, but uh, it, it's large and uh, modern architecture in the middle of these rock ruins. Well, taken from Peter's house, looking over at the synagogue in Capernaum. This is the synagogue where Jesus would teach whenever he was in town, whenever he was coming back and, and maybe refueling and you know, getting things together for his next outreacher for his next quest, he would come and he would teach here in Capernaum. And he would live here during the times when he was in the northern part of the nation, when he would be ministering in Galilee. This is in the Galilee. And so I, the reason I bring this up is you look at the rock ruins here, and these are first century homes. And when Jesus was talking about what he was talking about, when he said, in my father's house are many dwelling places, I stood, if you see the little red square, that I, little rectangle that I put up there, kind of in the top center, or the up above center, uh, that's a railing outside of the synagogue that looks out over these ruins. And right where that red is, Stacy and I stood, uh, when we were in Israel together, and uh, as we stood there, our teacher began to teach us from John chapter 14. And I never considered what was being said here until I was there. And so that we're not able to go there, I'm bringing there here. Did that make sense? Okay. Anyway, yeah, I know. I got some people with wrenched faces, but uh, stay with me on this. So what happened there is Jesus is using wedding language. He's using first century wedding language when he says, in my father's house are many dwelling places. What would happen was a son, when he would get, he would come of age, and they usually had prearranged marriages with dowries and all that stuff. Um, and, and yet he would get come of age and, and his family would have selected a bride for him to, to marry. He would go and he would become betrothed to that bride. Now, as he's betrothed to her, they would go through a one-year, roughly, one to two-year betrothal. They would live separately part of that time, and he would go back to his father's house, and he would add on, or he would divide, and he would make a place for he and his bride to come. So, as I'm looking out over these ruins, I see, and you can't see it from this angle, but I'm looking down and I see this Here's a wall here, and a wall here, and a wall here, and then there's this really kind of odd-looking row of stones. They're more round than the square stones and all that. And, and our teacher pointed those out, and he said, this, is, this was a son who was betrothed to his wife. This is a division. It was a different architecture. He used what was available at that time because he was going to make a place for her. And so when Jesus is using this wedding language from the first century, he's saying, look, Church, bride, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And, and, and you can't come because I, I have business to tend to. Kingdom business is called purchasing your soul. And once I've done that, I'm going to go there and I'm going to prepare that place there so that you can come with me when I come back to take you home. 
And he is giving these people intimate terms that that would be the same as a, a, a groom for his bride. This plays out in the New Testament in, uh, extensively in, in different places. In Thessalonians, when we look at the rapture, it says, and the archangel will, will descend from heaven with a shout and blow the horn and all that. What would happen before the, the groom, would, as he would come? The, the bride would not know the day or the hour that her groom was coming. Sound familiar? So the bride wouldn't know that. But the groom would, and he would get the best man, the groomsman, and he would go before the best man, and he would blow the shofar, the trumpet, announcing the groom's arrival. That's exactly what happens when Jesus comes back, when he does what he says here, as we look at it in, in Paul's writings in Thessalonians, where he says that he comes back for the church with the trump, with the trumpet sound and, and the groomsman, the, the archangels coming first. It's wedding language there too. And he's saying, I'm going to come and I'm going to take you out of here and I'm going to take you to my father's house that I've prepared for you. And that's a promise to every one of us. And as I stood there, leaning over the rail at the ruins of ancient Capernaum, looking at the additions to the house, I began to weep. Because I realized something in that moment. I'd studied this passage over and over over the years. But I realized that it's not about the house. It's about who's inside. It's about the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the, the one who purchased my soul, that he could take me as his bride and that he will consummate the wedding, the marriage. He will take us and he will take us home. So when he's telling these guys this, he's giving them a glimpse of heaven because it's not about the place. And yeah, streets of gold's not a bad thing. I mean, what they call asphalt there, we call riches here. But it's not about that. It's about being with him forever, for eternity. And so he lays eternity in front of these guys at this point, And he says, look, I'm gonna, I, I, I can't take you with me, but I will come back. And, and then further in the chapter, he's going to say, but I'm not leaving you as orphans. And we'll get into that next week because we're going to talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But what he's saying here is very, very significant. And it's significant not just for them, but it's significant for us because when my heart's troubled, all I have to do is remember, believe in me. Believe in God, believe in me. Okay, believe I've got this. Believe this life is not my home. My home is there, that place that he's prepared for me. I don't have to get sideswiped by the stuff in this life. I can have a peace as I go through it. I can understand that my life isn't going to be fun circumstances all the time. This life never is. But I can also understand that, that he's got this and it frees me to love others the way he's loved me. Do you see how this all hooks together? He's preparing us for that place in the meantime. And I want to also point out that eternal life begins now. Heaven is then, but eternal life begins at the moment or the point of someone's conversion to Christ. If you know him this morning, are you living your life in that way? If you don't know him this morning, you can step into eternal life before you leave here. 
All you have to do is simply pray. Ask him to forgive you for your sins, to forgive you for the life that you've led away from him and step into his kingdom. I'm going to share with you guys, this is a bit of a significant day for me, just on a personal note. It was 35 years ago this morning, about this time, that I gave my life to Christ. And, and at a, a service in Southern Oregon, where the pastor gave a message uh, out of the Gospel of Matthew, and, and I resisted. I was like, I'm not going to be manipulated by these religious people. You know, I was like, no, 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 no. And I resisted. And, and the Lord just, the Holy Spirit, he's, God's so faithful. Uh, this pastor just let it hang in the room. There was just a silence for probably 45 seconds or a minute. It seemed like forever. And then he simply said, through a prophetic word, through a word that the, the Lord had given him, I don't know who you are. And I immediately went, I do. Um, he said, I want to encourage you, my friend, let go. Give your life to Christ. And I broke. And my life has never been the same since. It's a special day for me. It's the only time I get to tell everybody I'm 35. So <laughs> anyway. Verse four, and where I go, you know, and you know the way. He's been telling these guys for three and a half years what he's going to do. And he repeatedly told them and where he had to go. Uh, so the third question here in verse 5, Thomas, now Tom steps in. He says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? I love Thomas. He's, you know, we, he gets a bad rap, doubting Thomas. He's just so honest. Honest Thomas. That actually kind of rhymes. But he's just, with no guile, he's saying, Jesus, we need directions. He, that's what he's saying. We don't know where you're, what are you talking about? All right, you're going to go. He's thinking Jesus is going to go to some other locale. And so he says, we don't know how to get there. Could you, you know, tell us the way? <laughs> Jesus answers him, verse six. And he said, I am the way. Oh, uh, and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the father except through me. What does he mean? What he's saying here is he's saying, I am the singular way to God, the truth about God, and the life of God. Very singular, very narrow. And, and people in our culture, you know, in our postmodern culture, people resist that. Oh, don't you just tell me there's only one way to God? Well, got news for you. It's not my concept. It's not something I made up. It's something that Jesus spoke of himself. And it's very narrow. It's very narrow. As a matter of fact, he said it's a narrow path that leads to life. A broad highway that leads to destruction. I was thinking about this. I was thinking, you know, uh, when I was candidating to pastor here, the second time I came and visited y'all was in July last year. And I, I got on a plane back to Denver after this and um, promptly had my gallbladder removed surgically. <laughs> and I'd been having a little trouble with it. And I went back and I had surgery. And I got to think, well, you know, what would have been for the surgeon? What would it have been like if, if he said, you know, while I'm in here, I think we'll do some other work. Yeah, we got the gallbladder. Well, how, how, while we got John open here, how about we take out a section of his intestines? I don't like the way that looks. You know, hey, 
how, what if he wasn't narrow? What if he didn't have a specific purpose in mind to remove my gallbladder because it was not doing well and he just started tearing things up? We look at that and we think, well, that's ludicrous. He, you know, well, number one, he'd you know, never do that. Of course he wouldn't. But why do we look at it? There's a specific purpose in things in our lives. I mean, and that's talking about a physical problem, not an eternal one. And yet we can't, or we want to kick against the notion that there is one way to God. It's not like, well, I get to choose. There's many roads. And I've heard that. People have told me that before. Don't all roads lead to God? No, they don't. And you got to run that out, folks, because if you make that claim, you are saying the cross of Christ is not enough. And I submit to you, it is enough. And it's offense. It's an offense to the cross itself. It's an offense to God to claim that there is any other way to get to God. It had to be one way. And he says, I am the way. And the marvel isn't that there is a way. The marvel is that there's any way. If you look at humanity, I mean, at, at, uh, we live on a, a planet where people shake their fists at God and they want to throw him off and they want to relegate him to uh, you know, obscurity and, and not even realizing the creator of this world that we live in, the one who upholds all things by the word of his power, and that he holds your breath in his hand. And all he has to do is that, and you're done. And yet we want to we rail against him. And I'm not saying we, I'm talking about our world. And we rail against him and we want to call him on the carpet. We want to tell him what a horrible job he did with this world and all of that when it's our responsibility. We're the ones that trashed it and he's come to redeem it. He says, I'm the way. Singular. I'm the truth. Singular. I'm the life. One way. One truth. One life. How quickly this life goes by and people to not come to that conclusion, how woefully they fall short of any kind of peace, meaning, uh, sustenance in this life. It, for Jesus, the way would be the cross. In Acts chapter 4, we read, Nor is there any salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He came, it didn't come to show the way. He, he came to be the way. Uh, let's say, you know, I, have you ever been lost in a town that you're, you've never been in and you go to ask directions? <laughs> yeah, I think most of us have, if not all. And, and guys, I mean, the first thing we do is haul out a map. Not. <laughs> no, we don't. So let's say that you you know you're you're lost you you know you're you're trying to find you know Betty's restaurant up on Main Street and you're somewhere and you can't find this place and you stop and you ask somebody directions and they say well yeah okay all you have to do it's real easy have uh, do 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 you know where the Dairy Queen is no no and usually by that point I'm saying no I've never been here before because I want them to know I know nothing about your town. <laughs> But they say, well, okay, all right, well, it's pretty easy then. You just go up to the third signal and turn left, go down about two blocks, there's a small street, turn right, and it'll kind of hook around in a circle, but make sure you stay straight at the Y, and you're going, oh my gosh. <laughs> I, and you guys have done this. I've done this. I mean, I think that there are magically people in every town that give bad directions. I don't know. 
but how much different it is if this person's trying to show me the way, right? And how much easier it is if they say, follow me. Follow me. You don't even have to think about it. I'll do the work. You, all you have to do is follow. That's what Jesus is doing here. When he says, I'm the way, he's saying, I'm not showing you the way. I am the way. Follow me. It'll all work out. And, and, and so I love that about him. He, he doesn't tell us about it. He, he is the way. Uh, the second thing we look at here is the truth. And uh, I'm going to read something that I came across that says it better than I can, so I'm just going to go for it. Uh, if a man proposes to teach moral truth and his character makes his character makes all the difference in the world, an immoral person who teaches the necessity of purity, a selfish person who teaches the value of generosity, a domineering person who teaches the beauty of humility, an easily angered person who teaches the beauty of serenity, an embittered person who teaches the beauty of love is bound to be ineffective. Moral truth cannot be conveyed solely in words. It must be conveyed in example. And that is precisely where the greatest human teacher must fall down. No teacher has ever embodied the truth he taught except Jesus. Many a man could say, I have taught you the truth. Only Jesus could say, I am the truth. He's the embodiment of truth. He doesn't say, I'm giving you truth. He says, I am truth. And what a tremendous statement. What does that mean in practical terms to us? It means you can trust him. You can trust him. Uh, in Hebrews 6, it says it's impossible for God to lie. And therefore, uh, we take hold of the hope that's set before us because it's an anchor for the soul, a hope that is both sure and steadfast. In other words, you can... You can you can grab a hold of Jesus and know that you're getting truth. He doesn't know any other way. It does not exist in God. That you will be immersed in truth as you're immersed in him. So when he says, I am the way, not showing you the way, I am the way. I am the truth. I am not giving you truth. Yes, I'll give you truth. But he's the only one that could embody the truth. And then he says, I'm the life. Why am I here? Isn't that what every human being asks at some point or another? Why do I exist? Why do I have life? What's the meaning of life? I remember after Stacy and I met, uh, Feeling very romantic and, and thinking, I just didn't know life before her. I didn't. I, I, of course, I had life before her, but I didn't. I didn't know life. I there was a, an aspect of, of of loving her that that it just exceeded anything I thought. And and so I'm thinking, you know, I really didn't have life. And I was thinking about that as I was thinking about today and, and being 35. Haha. <laughs> um, and I didn't even get any birthday cards, but. Um, I was thinking about that and thinking, you know, 35 years ago today, I found life. Oh, I was alive before then, but I didn't have life. And, and, and being the most significant event in my life when the Lord Jesus himself flooded my soul and, and, 
and gave me the, his own spirit to come and to guide me in my life. And I was alone, completely alone until then. And yes, I had a life. I had you know, kids and the whole deal, but I didn't have life. And when he says, I'm the life, he's talking about the life that he brings. He is truly life. He's eternal life. The Bible tells us that he says, I come that you might have life and that more abundantly. In John 1, he, right as we began this gospel, it says, in him was life. And that life is the light of men. And in John chapter 11, there with Mary and Martha coming to the tomb of Lazarus, where he tells the girls, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who lives and believes in me shall never die. And, and then he says, do you believe this to the ladies? And, and I would submit to you, do you believe this? Do you believe that he is life? He it doesn't, again, he's not bringing the definition of life. He is life. And when our lives are in him, we have life. It's different than thinking in linear terms like we do in this finite body. I have a birth and a death. A birth is when I get life and death is when I lose life. That's not how it works in God's kingdom. Two births, two deaths. Everybody gets three. You're either born once and then born again of his spirit and then you don't see the second death or you are born once and you reject. You die physically and then there's the great white throne of judgment which is called the second death. You don't want that. Summing up, we're out of time. Jesus is the embodiment of truth and he's the singular way to life. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. He, you know, he makes these exclusive claims and then he backs it up and says, this is exclusive. You don't add to this. Now I want to zoom out for a second as we close and I want to look at Peter. Remember back in chapter 13, Peter said, not my feet, when Jesus came to wash them and Jesus' response to that was, all right, you don't want me to wash your feet, you don't have any part with me. He goes, oh, well, then wash all of me. And, and then Jesus says, well, all right, you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. You only need to have your feet washed. All right, fine. So then here, as we're looking at it this morning, Peter says, where are you going? He says, where I'm going, you can't follow, uh, but you will. And then Jesus goes on to tell Peter, Satan has requested to sift you. And he says, I'll go to jail for you, Lord. I'll die for you. And, and Jesus essentially says, will you? Will you deny me? You will deny me this night, Peter. Jesus met these guys where they were. They didn't get it down every time. And you might think, well, this is before the Holy Spirit was given on Pentecost, John. So, you know, after that, things got a lot better. And they did. But they're still human. In the book of Galatians, Paul stands against Peter. He says, Peter, and he rebukes him publicly. And this is a guy, I mean, he's an apostle. He is, he's like one of the leaders of the early church. And he separates off with the Jews when they show up. And Paul rebukes him publicly for that. Does that mean that Peter was ticked off at Paul? Not according to 2 Peter, where he talks about our beloved. He refers to him as a beloved brother. My point is, folks, there's room to not have it all down. 
we, we see the ideal here. We read these things in the Bible. We see the ideal. And I want to I wanna avoid creating uh, an atmosphere where if we're not living according to the ideal, then there's somehow something wrong with us. He calls us to a life of grace. He calls us to love one another as he loves us. How that has worked out is what we're seeing here. He's got room for Thomas and his goofy comments. He's got room for Peter and all of his misinterpretations. He's got room for you. He's got room for me. And he loves us with an eternal love. He loves us. He pours out grace on our lives because we don't always get it right. I'm not making an excuse for sin. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that he knows that we are, we're just people. I have a dear old friend that says we're just little people. <laughs> and, and, and we're reliant upon the grace of God. We don't get far. I mean, let's be really honest. If the basis of God's judgment is thoughts, words, and deeds, how far into the day do I get before I'm relying upon God's grace? Not very far, huh? That's the God that we serve. That's the love that he talks about. That's the love that he has for us. Because without it, we don't stand. None of us, we don't stand for five minutes. It's the love he wants us to have for one another. And it's significant because Peter could say, you know, I came under spiritual attack that night when I betrayed Jesus. Satan really attacked me, and he did. But what was God doing through that? He was allowing Peter to be broken. Because up until this point, it was self-will. It was, man, I'll, I'll go to the death for you, Jesus. Uh, man, I got great plans for this thing. And Jesus said, you know what? I've got to break that out of you. I've got to take that away from you. I've got to get you to a point where you're relying on me, not on you. Because you don't see the whole picture, Pete. I do. Let me work in you and through you. So, so often when we go through things, and I'm not saying this is every single time because we go through different things. So I want to be careful not to make a blanket statement. But often when we go through things and we say, man, the enemy really attacked me here. Or man, I went through this trial there and I was just, the Lord just laid my heart open. Very often what he's doing is he's allowing that into your life to break you, to pry your fingers off of something that is not going to bring him glory. I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, cooperate with the work of his spirit. Don't let your heart be troubled by it, but cooperate. Allow him to work in you. Don't be pointing your finger at, at other people. Let God work in them. Have enough room. Jesus had enough room for them. Then I think it's a good thing that we have enough room for them too. We've, we're saved to a life of grace. We walk in his grace. We extend his grace. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. It's his love in us shed abroad through us as we walk this walk, as we live this life with all the difficulties that come. I just want to encourage you this morning, let him have his way with you. Whether it's in trial or things are good, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your divinely inspired word. Lord, thank you for this glimpse that the disciples in that upper room as, as, as they were troubled, as, as they uh, pondered the things that Jesus was saying and as they just didn't add up and, and they had to walk by faith because there was really nothing else at that moment. 
And Lord, so often that's the case in our lives. And I pray that as you touch our hearts, as you work in us, that you would work the work that you want to do, that you have, you have tailor-made for each of us. I don't know how you do it, Lord, but I know you do. And so I pray for each of these in this room this morning, those watching online, that you would have your way, that you would find hearts that are yielded to the working, the moving, the empowering of your Holy Spirit within. We thank you, Lord. We praise you. We pray now that you'd go before us the rest of this day. Uh, pray for the fellowship, uh, for the potluck coming up. And just thank you, Lord, that you've given us not only your spirit, but you've given us each other. Let us just enjoy one another. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.